So, you know, now that, uh, now that summer is nearly over, it's kind of time again to, to begin to step back into the regular lectionary readings that'll take us through the, the big seasons and celebrations of the, the church here. And today is a great day to do that because the New Testament epistle uh, reading for today is about a topic that seems to be of almost universal interest, regardless of who you are or where you're from, uh, and that topic is prayer. And you know, if you take a, a look around, you're going to find that there are, gosh, there's books and uh, tapes and, and uh, conferences and seminars and websites by the millions out there giving people advice on how to pray, right? Just you know, when, don't do it now, but when you get home uh, on your phone, just type in the search engine on, on your phone uh, the word prayer. And depending on which one you use, you're going to find anywhere from, and I did it this week, anywhere from 75 million to 100 million entries and different articles and sites and, and, and books uh, on prayer, right? Because every major world religion has some form of prayer. Uh, New Age gurus are, are everywhere out there ready to tell you how to meditate and how to connect with the divine. Uh, of course, you know, there's news stories about cities and county townships that try to regulate when and how people can pray uh, at public meetings. Uh, and you already know that by and large, most schools have completely outlawed uh, prayer in the classroom. Although one writer uh, I was reading this week did quip that as long as there are math tests, there will always be prayer in school. Right, right, JJ? Uh, and as Christians, we know how important prayer can be, and yet if we're honest, if we're really honest, a lot of times prayer can be a source of confusion and mystery. Uh, confusion not only with the question concerning uh, what to pray and how to pray, but also wondering whether or not prayer makes a difference. Uh, wondering, you know, why does God seem silent sometimes to our prayers? Or maybe why does God seem to answer the prayers for other folks, but he never seems to answer mine? Uh, and, and when we find ourselves on the receiving end of one after another after another, of perhaps how we feel or what we would call an answered prayer, uh, how are we to understand both its value and the God who loves us and desires to have regular communion with us? And so again, we're picking up the lectionary readings we're going to jump right into 1 Timothy. So I hope you have your Bible in front of you, looking at it in your own Bible, not just... I know it's on the screen, but it's more important that you see it in front of you. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'm going to read you the first six verses. So we're going to be in Timothy for a little while uh, this coming month. And uh, Paul writes, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And brothers and sisters, that's the word of the Lord for us today. Thanks be to God. And let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you so much for the faithful testimony of this letter from the Apostle Paul to your servant Timothy. We ask, Father, for your Holy Spirit to guide and to teach us as we open it up. And in just these next few fleeting minutes, Lord, that you would teach us according to your will. Because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there was a... Uh, uh, a World War I era Scottish theologian by the name of David McIntyre that wrote, No duty is more earnestly impressed upon us in Scripture than the duty of continual communion with God. 
But you know, as I said before, prayer isn't always easy for everyone, is it? And part of the trouble is way too many messages on prayer try to lay a guilt trip on people, on, on the listener or the reader, uh, for not praying enough. In fact, I, I was, when I was thinking about this, I've even been guilty of that before. Like, Remember the time when I shared with you how Martin Luther uh, once said he was going to be so busy on one particular day that he needed to spend the first three hours of that morning in prayer? Right? Like, like somehow that was supposed to motivate you to get out of bed at 3 a.m. and start to pray on a day you have a really hectic schedule um, because it didn't motivate me to do that either. So I, I don't, I don't want to... I uh, want this message to imply that I've got it all together when it comes uh, to this prayer thing, or I don't want to increase your guilt. But I do want all of us to learn how to pray rightly and to be motivated to pray more often. And that was Paul's intention in writing this letter to Timothy, because he started out, if you were paying attention, with the words, first of all. But then if you happen to go ahead and read through the rest of the book, there's no part of the letter that says second of all, or, or third of all, that follows after. And so with the Greek word that he uses here, proton, Paul is not laying out bullet points uh, in an argument. And he's not giving us a laundry list of to-do items, but he's closer to saying above all, right? Above all. Because as the one commentator put it, prayer is not a nicety, but it's a necessity. And although our sovereign God is sovereign, yet his sovereign plan includes the prayers of his people. Another commentator put it like this. He said, not only has God made the accomplishment of his purposes hang on the preaching of the word, but he's also made the success of that preaching hang on prayer. The earnest, faith-filled prayers of God's people. Right? Amen, somebody. Right? Which again is not always easy, right? That's why Paul says elsewhere in Romans 15, Dear brothers and sisters, I urge you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to join my struggle by praying to God for me. He says, I urge you. The English Standard Version says, I appeal to you. Another version says, I implore you to join my fight because Paul admits he had some real concerns. He had some real difficulties. And his devotional life was not all just sunshine and roses. And, you know, I think at least for me that his words here are, are all the more significant when you remember uh, that Paul was one of the most gifted godly men who ever lived, right? I mean, if there was ever a guy who seemed to have it all together, it was the Apostle Paul, right? He was bold. He was, he was outspoken. He was on fire for the kingdom. And at the same time, he didn't try to come across like he didn't have any needs. Uh, no, instead, Paul here is freely and repeatedly admitting and saying to the, the churches, he desperately needed their prayers. Because for Paul, as I said before, prayer was not just a nice thing to do, it was a necessity. And Paul is also telling his audience through Timothy and telling us not just to pray because he asked us to, but Paul urges us to pray by our Lord Jesus Christ. Which means that we take our specific needs and we present them as an appeal to Christ's authority in our circumstances. And I think the easiest way to think about it is like, do you ever have like an issue to resolve with your bank or, or, or with your broker or your insurance company? And, you know, you try to go through like a lower level customer service person to, to get what you need. What, what are the chances of that? Right. Pretty slim. But now what happens if you have that same trouble and you know the administrator or, or you know the manager and you, and you go directly to them, right? You have a much better chance of success, right? Well, we as Christians can go directly to the top and make our appeal to the God of the universe through the authority of his son. Because if you remember when Jesus gave the great commission before 
Uh, he ascended into heaven. He said in Matthew 28, 18, some of the authority is given to me in a couple of few places. Is that what it says? No, what does it say? All, all authority has been given to me, right? In heaven and on earth. So that doesn't leave out any place anywhere, does it? Right? Which means that we can pray to God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ with the confidence that he has not only the power, but the authority to answer our prayers in accordance with his will. Right? In accordance with the counsel of his good pleasure as he works all things out after the counsel of his will, right? It all works as a piece. And Paul wants us to understand that God uses our prayers as a part of that process, and we can't lose sight of that. But to also realize that God is sovereign in how and when he answers those prayers that we submit to him. And so when we know that, then what happens to a person who starts to pray with that kind of attitude? Well, then that person becomes more and more aware of the hand of God's providence in our lives. And then you start to grow in a sense of joy and a sense of gratitude toward God. And when we do that, we're naturally encouraged, right? We're encouraged to trust God. And we're encouraged to keep a short account with the Father when it comes to our failings and our falling into sin and doubt by confessing our sin and seeking His forgiveness. And so in the long run, then, we need to ask, who does prayer really change, God or me? Right? And when you reason that out, we say, well, okay, so does God answer our prayers? Yes. Uh, can our request change God's sovereign plan if he has one in a matter? Of course not. Right? Uh, when God sovereignly declares that he's going to do something, then all the prayers in the world are not going to change his mind. But the balance to that thought is that God not only ordains the ends, as I mean, like the conclusions, he also ordains the means or the ends of the process to get there. Right? And he uses our prayers. He brings his sovereign will to pass through the prayers of his people. And so we pray. And we pray with a right understanding that prayer is powerful, but with the balance that God is sovereign in the outcome. And at the same time, though, not forgetting that you and I are children of the king and we have access and the invitation to bring all of our cares and our concerns directly to him. All of them, right? which includes every kind of prayer for any type of people. That's why we read, he said, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. Did that leave out any kind of prayer? That's all of them, right? To be made for all people. So who does that leave out? Nobody, right? If you love people, you pray for them. Uh, you pray for your kids because you love them. You pray for your family members even when they frustrate you because you love them. If you care about someone's eternal destiny, you pray for their salvation. If you're concerned about a couple that's struggling in their marriage, you pray for them. If you really and truly care about injustice and poverty and crime in the world, just like these dear folks said in their presentation, right? you don't just throw up your hands in despair. right? You pray for them. Right? You pray for them. You raise your hand in prayer and cry out to God and get in the fight. That as we read, we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Which may sound kind of counterintuitive when you think about fighting and peace until you remember that famous old Latin quote, right? Sivis pacum parabellum. If you want peace, prepare for war. Because praying rightly, we need to understand that prayer is warfare, both in heaven and on earth. And there is nowhere and no one that its effects cannot reach. 
because it's for all people regardless of their position in rank or their condition in life. No person is too far gone or too lost in sin whom God cannot reach. Nor is there a person so high and mighty in a position of government that they don't need God's grace. Remember, the Bible says that all people everywhere are sinners who need to know God's Savior. And you may not be able to speak to that person about God, but you can always talk to God about that person, right? Regardless of who they are or where they are or perhaps even how we feel about them. And don't forget, when Paul here calls for prayer for those in positions of authority in government, that included the cruel maniac Nero, who later executed both Peter and Paul, and who heartlessly lit his imperial gardens in the evenings with live Christians covered in pitch, burning as human torches. And so surely, surely that means we are without excuse in being commanded to pray for the lesser petty tyrant who's the current resident of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And not only for his escape from damnation, but because there are many serious and far-reaching issues and decisions that are being made by the leaders of our country, and so we should be continually making intercession for them before the throne of God, even when we don't agree with their policies, regardless of how wicked they may be, that their work should be bathed in the prayers of God's saints. Because the Bible says uh, the ruler's heart is in the hands of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. And so, church, prayer is a means not only for moving, but perhaps for removing tyrants and for establishing peace. And don't mishear me. I'm not talking about peace for our own sake, but peace and freedom to spread the gospel without obstruction and sending it to a waiting world, uh, not like the phony modern-day name-it-and-claim-it theology of personal security and, 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 and personal prosperity, right? Those, those groups, those Bible teachers that say things like, you know, if you're struggling, that must mean you're not resting in Christ. Or how about the ones that say, you know, if you're sick, well, you just don't have enough faith to get well, right? You don't have a new house or a new car, then you're not sowing enough seeds of faith into my ministry. So, you know, if you guys want a new car, you send me $1,000 this afternoon. That may work, I don't know. Um, but, you know, but, you know, if that's true, then that means that Paul needed to learn from those folks, right? Because he struggled, right? He says he wrestled, he fought. And so for you and me today, that means if you don't find prayer to be easy, well, welcome to the genuine Christian life because you are not alone, right? Because Paul says it requires striving and wrestling against the forces of darkness in all of their forms and against the desires and the comforts of our own flesh, how many of you guys know John Piper? Right? Okay, a couple, right? He said in, in a book on prayer, he said, our prayers are often ineffective because we wrongly view it as calling for the butler to bring us another glass of iced tea rather than rightly viewing it as a walkie-talkie to call in more supplies and ammunition to the front lines of the battle. Right? Ray Stedman put it like this. He said, prayer is the first artillery salvo that opens up a territory to possess it for God. And sure, that's whether the battle is in Paul's day or today in ours. Because, you know, even though it, it may seem like things, you know, it may seem like it, things really aren't that different between our day and his day. You know, if you think about it, not only was the, the Roman Empire in the context in which this letter was written, uh, undoubtedly the most powerful and technologically advanced and literate society of the time, it was also one of the most violent, cruel, and decadent uh, societies with, with a wholesale persecution of the church about to begin. And, and so 
we have to ask ourselves not only how would those first century Christians supposed to have prayed for peace, but how in the world can we uh, find it in a society that equals or maybe exceeds Rome's corruption? And the key is actually right in the type of peace that we're supposed to be praying for. Not the peace that the world gives, not what the world thinks of as peace, but the peace that God gives. A peace that looks at the world not through rose-colored glasses, not by denying the world around us and the heart within us are not touched by sin and corruption, not by sticking our head in the sand, but by looking for a peace that comes from understanding how much God loves us and the lengths that he went to to redeem us in the person and the work of his son. You see, it's why, it's why in Philippians, Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, and you may say, well, pastor, that's super easy to do when we're all sitting here in church on Sunday morning, but then what do I do all during the rest of the week at home? Right? How, how do I find that kind of peace when the TV news is on and I see uh, tensions rising in, in Russia and Iran and the Ukraine? Um, how can I get a little bit of that when I'm laying awake at night worrying about a doctor's report uh, or about an upcoming surgery? Uh, how can I feel at ease when I'm bombarded with stories of, of mass shootings or, or floods of undocumented immigrants invading our nation or the outbreak of, you know, monkeypox and COVID 2.0 and whatever else is out there. Where's God in all of that? Um, how could there be a, a plan behind all that pain? How could there be any purpose in that suffering, right? Where do we look for comfort amidst unrelenting chaos? And, you know, those are very real questions that we wrestle with. Anybody going to be honest and say you wrestle with those questions, right? And they all deserve real answers. The only trouble is we're not posing them in the right way. Right, because all the commentators on the left and all the pundits on the right can't answer any of those questions. Uh, celebrities can decry violence and, and raise money, but they can't rise to an answer. The government can try to legislate one or can try to conduct investigations, but they can't mandate a moral solution. Because, you see, we're asking the right questions. We just aren't asking them to the right person. And in the midst of all this chaos, the God of the universe invites us to bring our questions to him. So instead of asking them just, just bluntly to ourselves or other people, we need to say, Father, can there be any plan in my suffering? Lord, Lord, can there be any purpose in my pain? God, can there ever be any comfort in this chaos? And when we direct those struggles, those questions that we wrestle with, those heartfelt prayers to God, he says, as we read in our text, this is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And then with his precious nail-scarred hands, he beckons us and says, here, I, I'm right here. Look here at the cross. I, I've already been where you are so that you'll never have to go there alone. And I've bridged that gaping chasm of your sin that kept you separated from the Father. And Jesus says, I am he who was dead and is now alive so that your faintest cry can reach the throne room of heaven. Because as we read, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, for you, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And brothers and sisters, today is that proper time. Today is the day to be saved. If you haven't been saved, I urge you, in Christ's name, repent and believe the gospel as we pray. Let's pray together.
God, our Father, we thank you so much for the vehicle of prayer we have. We thank you, Lord, that because of what your son accomplished on the cross, that the, uh, the veil in the temple was torn in two, and we can come right into your very throne room of grace. We don't need uh, any mediator between us but your son. And so we are so grateful, Lord, this morning that uh, everything that's weighing heavy on our hearts, everything that's weighing heavy on our minds, uh, we can lay before you and leave it there, Father, confident that you've already made a plan for it. And so I ask uh, as well, Lord, if there's even one among us that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that you would surprise them by the power of your presence, that you would open their eyes, unstop their ears, uh, and save them, Father, according to your will. And we thank you for all that you're about to do in and through us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. And brothers and sisters, would you please stand for uh, the Apostles' Creed and for our closing hymn. So let's confess together publicly what we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of sins, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.